a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey there, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. I'll have something to say about these sponsors later on, but right now I'm pleased to welcome my friend and fellow heretic, Eric Peters from EPAutos.com. Eric, how are you? I'm really good, uh, and I'm in a really good mood, given some of the developments in the, in the news lately that we talked a bit uh, about before we got on air. It's, it's rare that we have good news to talk about, so I'm, I'm happy for this as well. What do you want to lead off with? Well, uh, two things. One is the news that uh, the governor of Texas, Abbott, has uh, decided to forbid any vaccine mandates, not just for the government, but for private businesses as well, and to remand that to the voluntary choice of the individual person, which is wonderful. So now we have two states. We have Texas and Florida that are pushing back against this. And the other bit of news comes out of Florida, where apparently um, there has been a mass walkout of people who worked for Southwest Airlines over the vaccine mandate. And, and this caused quite a disruption in air travel over the weekend, mass flight cancellations and so on. And I'm hoping that this sort of thing will spread. It won't take much, just a little bit more, and they will not be able to, to pursue this. It's a really good analogy. A good way to look at this is to go back through the pages of history and think about prohibition 100 years ago when the government made a really concerted effort to try to illegalize the consumption of alcohol, and people just wouldn't have it. They wanted to have their beer, they wanted to have their wine, and they, they just ignored and defied the law until the thing became unenforceable and it was eventually repealed. Well, I'm happy to see, uh, do I dare say, a spirit of rebellion finally mm-hmm. taking hold in the hearts of my fellow Americans. I am, too. I think people are at their wits' end with this. You know, we're getting to, the, we're getting to nearly the two-year mark. We're, we're almost there of the beginning of this whole fiasco, and that's a long time to expect people to live in a state of constant panic uh, and to diminish their lives and to torment them. And that's what we're really ultimately talking about here, torment them with these bizarre and absurd rituals that they're supposed to perform with the crippling of their lives, the crippling of their economic livelihoods. Uh, I think more and more people are saying it's enough and it's time to stop this. Agreed. And it's isn't it interesting, I don't know if you saw the tweet, I can't remember who it was, it wasn't a government official yet, but someone observing on Twitter was like, well... It didn't take very long for these uh, pilots, you know, these, I, I guess they, he didn't even say pilots, anti-vaxxers, to, yeah. to use their domestic t- terrorism to uh, disrupt travel. And I went, oh boy, here we Dear go. God. Yeah, and by the way, I just posted an article about this whole anti-vax thing and the way language is being manipulated to smear and disparage the people's, uh, people's true positions. I'm not anti-vaccination as such, I think, uh, as a libertarian that every person is sovereign over their body and that they have the right to put anything they want to in their body. And it's none of my business. It's up to them to, to evaluate whether they think it's, um, whether it's safe, whether they think it's effective, that's their choice. So, uh, you know, I'm not quote unquote anti-vax. I'm anti being told that I must take the drugs that are being pushed by these people. And that's a clarification that I think we all should make whenever this topic comes up in conversation. Oh, I, I completely agree. 
And isn't it interesting how many people have found their livelihoods on the line simply for not wanting to be pushed into a medical decision that they did not make for themselves? Sure, and I think a lot of these people realize what I've been writing about for some time, which is that this goes beyond simply this particular drug, this particular medical procedure that they're pushing because of the underlying principle that's on the table, which is that if employers, if the government uh, can, can, can force you to submit to this particular medicine, to take this medicine, uh, then you have set the precedent for them being able to tell you practically anything with regard to your personal health choices. And that's a Pandora's box that we dare not open because it will completely alter forever the nature of life in this country in a way that I think most Americans would not like. Well, I I don't want to raise the victory flag too quickly, but this has got to be putting some fear in the in the hearts and minds of the people who are in power and desperately trying to hold on to that power. It, it couldn't be more clear. At least in some areas, it's beginning to slip through their fingers. It is, and of course, what comes along with that is a danger, because when you corner a rat, what happens? The rat tends to bear its fangs and will try to bite. So I fully anticipate that this is not going to just kind of fade away gently. I think that we're going to see and experience some really awful things over the course of the next several months as these people triple down on their hysteria. They have to. They can't let it go. They have committed and invested so much in this. People like Fauci, Gates, and all of them, their credibility is on the line. And more than that, ultimately, if this thing goes the wrong way for them, I foresee uh, a moment in time when they might be held personally accountable, even potentially criminally liable for the damage that they have caused, for the lies that they have told, for the laws that they have broken. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I yearn for that day. But in the meanwhile, we have to think about it because these people do have power still. They have political power. And I have no doubt that they are going to use it just as... Um, politicians in the past who've been cornered and threatened with the loss of their power and potentially threatened with consequences tend to lash out in a way that's not pleasant. Agreed. Now, there, talk to me about uh, the, the good news coming out of Texas. I know that Governor mm-hmm. Abbott uh, put down a pretty decisive foot yesterday about uh, vaccine mandates. What's the story mm-hmm. there? Well, apparently he did just that. He said, look, this is something that should be a voluntary decision. It is not something that any government entity or any private business has the right to impose on people as a condition of employment. It's simply none of the employer's legitimate business. It's none of the government's legitimate business. Now, I don't know whether he drew the parallel or said this. This is just me freestyling here. But, you know, he may have seen this as simply the same thing as putting out, um, you know, a no-colored sign in front of the store. This sort of thing, you just can't do this. It's not permissible. You can't invade people's personal space in this manner and interfere in their private personal decisions on the basis of some nebulous, putative public health threat. It's nonsense. And I applaud him for doing it. DeSantis has been excellent on this. And all we really need at this point are two or three more governors to to get this thing going kinetically and to develop an inertia that's going to be very, very hard to stop. Well, my fingers are crossed, and I I don't know what I can do on my end other than, you know, continue to exhort people, just do not comply. Yeah, to stand fast. You know, I've had this conversation privately with a number of friends of mine who are are facing this, this, um, this choice. You know, they are threatened with the loss of their livelihood. I've got a couple of friends who are nurses, for example, and as you know, um, the, the healthcare industry, and particularly anything connected with the government, has been the most vociferous with regard to forcing the jabs on people. 
and these friends of mine do not want to be jabbed, but they also don't want to lose their jobs. And I point out to them, you know, there's more on the line here than just your job. There's your health, for one thing. You, you know, you're being expected to place your health at risk for uh, the sake of these demented fears about people's health, which is a crazy contradiction to my mind. It, it just floors me the way that that thing has been presented to people. And that if you bow to this, as we were just talking about a few minutes earlier, then it will never end that they will then demand other things of you, increasingly intrusive, increasingly degrading, to the point where you will not want to work anymore. You will not want to live in this country anymore. You can always get another job. It's much harder to get another country. It's much harder to get your, get your health back once it's ruined. No, that's, that's a good point. And, and it takes I, – I can't tell you how much I admire the courage and the willingness to stand up there and, and suffer – you know, the injustice of losing their job or otherwise, you know, the shame of, of uh, not going along. But it, I, I can't help but think they're doing the right thing and they're doing it for the right reason. You know, I, I send whatever encouragement I can. I think I would, I would send it from my pocketbook as well just to make sure that they know we've got their backs. Sure. You know, Americans once were taught to admire this sort of thing. Remember Nathan Hale? I regret that I have but one life to give for my country things like that, you know, you have to take a stand sometimes. Uh, of course, it's not pleasant sometimes to take a stand. Sometimes that stand comes at personal cost. Sometimes it comes at the cost of your life. You know, we're not anywhere near that point yet, thank God. But we will get closer to that point if people aren't willing to stand up to this now. Yeah, something that has, has I've seen consistently in your writings on this matter is, you know, it's going to continue as long as you continue to comply. Once that's enough, exactly right. Once enough people decide we're not going to comply anymore, that's, that's when this will stop. Sure. Imagine going back into the pages of history, if you can uh, visualize being in Germany in the late 1920s. If enough Germans had said, you know, this is really wrong, this is intolerable, I'm not going to put up a sign in my store that says no Jews allowed, uh, I'm not going to snitch out uh, the guy who lives in the apartment below me because he's a Jew, I'm not going to do that. And not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to very openly and publicly uh, express my contempt and disgust for anybody who was involved in that sort of thing. Imagine how the world might have been different if people had done that back then. Yeah, it's not like the lessons of history aren't there for us to learn from. It's mm -hmm. just you got to pay attention. Hold that thought. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with Eric Peters from epautos.com. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com that will take you to his website. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I was uh, looking at an article that uh, I think you just posted earlier this morning about arguing what was never mm -hmm. argued. And, mm -hmm. uh, and th there's some great lessons to take away from this. Walk us through this, this uh, column, if you would. Well, essentially, it's about not letting yourself be, be, uh, uh, be pigeonholed into arguing about what you didn't argue. You know, we got into this a little bit earlier with regard to the anti-vax thing. Right. No, I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti-being pushed to get a vaccination. And that's an entirely different kind of discussion. Um, I, I wrote in my article about this electric car thing. I get criticized often as being anti-electric car, and that's absolutely not true. Now, I personally don't particularly like electric cars, 
but I have never once said that anybody should be prohibited from buying an electric car if they want to. And I have absolutely no problem ethically or morally with any company that wants to make them offering them for sale. What I do have a problem with is being told that I have to buy an electric car and that I must pay taxes to support the buying of electric cars by other people. You know, that's the conversation, just as it's the conversation with regard to the vaccines uh, that people should be free to take them and that you're not anti-vax because you're pro-choice with regard to the vaccinations. No, I, I agree. I think it's it's kind of a cheap psychological trick to, to switch it around. And, you know, it's I guess it's a it's a straw man argument. And, and there are plenty of things. It is, that- but, you know, in a way. The one thing about it that's really good is that it shows the weakness of the opposition. You know, they're very clever psychologically, the way they, can, they, the way they, the way they manipulate language and definitions to, uh, to try to manipulate the conversation. But fundamentally, it shows that they're afraid of truth. They're afraid of facts. They're afraid of having an honest conversation about anything because, generally speaking, they'll lose that kind of a conversation. Yeah. Yep. I, I completely agree. Um, let's talk about something else here that I know is on some people's mm-hmm. minds. I, I briefly mentioned this to my audience yesterday, but I want to go into some more detail with you. Tell me about your reaction to seeing empty store shelves and what this mm-hmm. uh, what this is telling us. Well, for me, it was almost a flashback. Um, I think you and I are about the same age. We're Gen Xers, so we can remember the Soviet Union. And we can probably remember documentaries of life in the Soviet Union where they would take the camera into one of the, uh, the supermarkets in Russia where the shelves were empty, you know. And we were like, wow, that's just, wow, that's really depressing. You know, it's not like that here in America. We go to the store and there's always plenty of everything. You never have any problem getting anything. Well, America is becoming Soviet. You know, I think uh, probably most of the people listening to this show will have experienced the same thing I've experienced and that I think you've experienced. You go to the supermarket now. And the shelves are kind of toothless. You know, you'll see these big gaping gaps where, where the, the products used to be. And in some cases, whole aisles are empty of products. I went to Walmart yesterday with my girlfriend because, you know, I kind of got a sweet tooth and I wanted to stock up on some candy. The whole aisle was practically empty. We took a video of it, and I'm going to post that on my site later. But I've never seen that in my entire life. Almost all the candy, the whole row, the entire length of that aisle, empty of any products. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of weird conspiracy nut, even though I probably am. I The thing that set me off was uh, when I started to notice the store shelves, uh, you know, and it was just a few empty spaces here and there. But as, as time has gone on, what has made me feel a chill up my spine is the recognition that this is becoming normalized. This It's, yeah. it's not that big of a deal because it's been going on now for at least a couple of months. But, yeah. I, am, but I am noticing those empty spaces are growing. Sure. And as you say, it's becoming normalized. Uh, This diminished life that they're trying to foist on us of scarcity, of higher cost. Look at the cost of a a a set of pork chops that used to sell for six or seven bucks at my Kroger is now like nine or ten dollars for the same thing. Um, It's really awful as America becomes Soviet because of all of these insane policies, which are deliberately malicious, that are designed to diminish our lives. To, to take away our choice and to increase the cost. It's not conspiracy when it's fact, and all you have to do is go out there and see it for yourself. Well, and, and to me, the craziest part about this, with all these container ships sitting off the coasts and, you know, the lack of Teamsters to unload them, the lack of drivers to to truck the, the goods where they need to go, mm-hmm. that's all the product of regulatory power 
at some level. It's not a matter of, well, gee, there's just, you know, so many people are sick or whatever. This is a conscious decision on somebody's part to, to not make things happen or to complicate things so that they don't happen. Without question. Uh, yeah, it's the administrative state decreeing what shall be, and now we're seeing people's reaction to it. I think with regard to the container ships and the Teamsters, I personally think that a big part of this so-called supply chain issue is that a lot of people who work in these various fields are electing to not come to work anymore because they don't want to be jabbed. That for them, as important as their job is and as much as they'd like to work, they simply will not abide this. They don't want to put their health at risk because there's nothing more important than that. You lose your health and you're not going to be able to work, and that's the bottom line. Yep. And and for those people who have, have been kind of slow to recognize, you know, corporate America appears to be very much in bed with whatever big government is is demanding. And so if you haven't thought about some yep. kind of an exit strategy, maybe this is a good time to start thinking, what can I do? What's an entrepreneurial thing, some kind of cottage industry that I could uh, could begin that could remove me from their clutches? Yeah, it's an interesting thing with regard to corporations. They sort of made a devil's pact with the government. This is a this is a this is a topic, a hot topic amongst libertarians. And what I mean by that is that corporations, as they exist in this country and everywhere else, practically are a creature of government. They're not free enterprise. The whole uh, legal exemptions that they, they they are limited liability corporations. They get special privileges by dint of their status as a corporation. But the downside to that is now the government owns them. Now the government can threaten to withhold their perks and privileges, to deny them their special tax status and so on, if they don't comply with what the government tells them to do. And that's why corporations have become the de facto enforcement mechanism of the government. No, it, it makes sense. And, and I guess, the, again, the, the option for people who, who work for those corporations or who, who are looking for jobs – at some point, you've got to be willing to break out of that employee mindset unless you want to be at the mercy of whatever the corporations and their government partners, you know, have in store for you. Yeah, that's very true. You and I have been talking for months now about this, and it's very important, about reclaiming your independence on an individual level by disconnecting from these uh, centralized, corporatized systems that have you by the short hairs. The more control you have over your own life, including your own economic life, the less control these centralized apparatuses have over your life. Agreed. And it's and I, I, as one who just really you know took my first big step into you know being an independent contractor just a little over a year ago, um, it took me a long time to get there. It's scary, mm-hmm. and there, there's risk involved. And um, yet, I look back on it now, and I think, okay, I wish I had done this many years sooner. And I'll take whatever risk is involved because there's a there's also an amount of freedom that's involved that I hadn't really counted on. There's there's more flexibility even if there is more risk. Well, you know, and another aspect of this, uh, and I'm speaking now to people who are out there listening to this who may be contemplating a similar move, is that the risk is to a great extent, in my opinion, illusory. What I mean by that is there's a presumption that if you work for a corporation or a company as an employee that you have job security, that you're safe. Well, you're not. You know, leaving aside all of the stuff that's happened with regard to the, the Rona, uh, the corporation can at any time decide to, to fire you. You are an at-will employee, uh, and your job security depends solely on the good graces of your employer. So while it's true that if you're self-employed, uh, you know, things may dry up next week, your job may dry up next week. But at least when you're self-employed, you're the decider, largely. It's up to you whether you succeed or fail. Uh, whereas you can be the best worker in the world, conscientious, and do your job, 
And the corporation can be poorly managed, or you could have a bad boss, and all of a sudden you've got no job, and then where are you? Great points. Eric, it's great to catch up with you each week. Um, in, in the 30 seconds we have left, tell our listeners where they can find your website. Sure. It's ericpetersautos.com, um, and you just plug my name into any search engine, you'll find it as well. And if you're interested in talking about political issues, philosophical issues, or just want to talk about cars, which is my favorite thing, uh, uh, please come down and, and do so. We'd love to have you with us. Okay. There's some great things to learn from the commenters on his page as well. Eric, we'll look forward to talking next week. Sounds good, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, it's true, my voice is hanging on by a thread today, but there is so much important stuff going on, and I want to share it with you, and of course... I always compile show notes. Every time I, I do an episode of the program, I publish show notes. And here's something you can do. If you, if you don't have time to listen to the show, if you only can catch a little bit on your way to work or whatever, that's, hey, that's fine. I'm not going to take offense. But if you want to check out the show notes, I, I would encourage you, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can subscribe, and it won't cost you a thing to subscribe. I will send you an email of my daily show notes, and then you can pick and choose what uh, you find most useful. Now, if you find value in what I'm doing, I would ask you to consider becoming a regular monthly contributor. I throw some pretty nice perks in the direction of those who become, you know, a, a yearly contributor, and the details are there, you know, but if you can, if you can do 5 bucks or 10 bucks a month, um, it's greatly appreciated. You keep the wolf away from my door. You allow me to focus my attention on finding and disseminating the best information that I can. And I greatly appreciate it. And there are a lot of folks who've been helping out like this, and it's it's wonderful. Thank you for making this possible. So we've had a solid year and a half to evaluate how all the various mandates and lockdowns and other official responses to COVID have panned out. In other words, we know what works and what doesn't. And yet there still persists this attitude of security theater. I know that's a term that's going to offend some people, but hear me out on this. Got a great article here from Joaquin Book, who points out that we're likely to continue to see more security theater simply because public health officials cannot admit that they were wrong about the various mandates, about the various lockdowns and other official responses. They're not interested in loosening their grip on power. And Joaquin Book starts with uh, an example of um, getting a taxi ride. He says, the taxi driver pulls up to where I wait alongside my newly found acquaintances, like me, eager to split the exorbitant fare. He's wearing an all-covering face mask, as well as one of those transparent visors that don't do anything but put distance between you and others physically and psychologically. In a place where almost nobody bothers with the masks anymore, partly because of low case counts and high vaccination rates, partly because of ire with how cumbersome they are. Joaquin Book says it's odd that taxi drivers stubbornly wear them. Now, when I entered the front seat, he insisted that I wear one too, 
even though he made no attempt to air out the very constricted space he'd already filled up with his own exhalation in the minutes before arriving. Somebody consistently frighted, frightened by catching or spreading COVID-19 ought to, at minimum, take the simplest and most effective precautions before insisting others embrace actions of which the real-world efficacy is highly in doubt. And by the way, he has a link to why all that masking stuff is highly in doubt. Halfway through the very silent ride, the driver reaches for the volume button and listens intently for the 11 o'clock news. He dutifully relays to us foreigners the latest COVID case counts and the number of children who had become infected. Worrying, he said, indeed, my acquaintances frantically agree. Now, Joaquin Book says this would not have been an uncommon event had this taken place 18 months ago. At a time when the pandemic was still new, when we still knew very little about how the disease operated, how to protect oneself against it, how it's transmitted, and who seemed to be most at risk. That this guy, clearly in distress, reported case numbers to strangers and took the very selective countermeasures he did in October 2021 reveals so many things that have gone wrong in the West, both COVID-related over the last year and a half and politically and personally over the last few decades. He says, Phil Magnus and James Harrigan recently reflected on the Great Barrington Declaration one year out. Among the things that they noted was the aim that our guests had in offering the Great Barrington Declaration was to spark scientific dialogue that had been missing from the lockdown discussions until that point. And Joaquin Book says, in trickling down to the average person, the proverbial man on the street, the hysteric voices of everlasting lockdowns have been utterly successful. One and a half years out, my taxi driver has neither encountered views of scientific reason nor incorporated into his behavior anything but the counterproductive measures that are the most invasive and most hyped in the news. It's feeling good, not doing good all over again. He says, for a piece in Bitcoin magazine in August, I wrote about the pretend world we find ourselves in. We live in a pretend world with pretend ideals, pretend money, and pretend language. A world of quick fixes and quick bucks, where the road to success no longer requires hard work, just papering over whatever defects emerge. If there's a freak virus precipitously spreading across the world, we come down heavy with all the mighty force of big government, assisted naturally by the central planners of the world. We don't let people take responsibility for their health, encouraging them to eat better, work out more, be outside more, but lock them in their homes where disease spreads faster, or easier rather, and where they don't renew their vitamin D supplies. We pretend the solution is a medical invasion, a quick fix, rather than a healthy body and a strong immune system. Joaquin Book writes that Ron DeSantis, the much-hated and much-admired governor of Florida, recently said about mask mandates that politicians want to force you to cover your face as a way for them to cover their own asses. We reacted, we overreacted truly. And he says we couldn't walk it back until saved by a do ex machina in the form of a medical intervention. And even then, the mask mandates got harsher for pretty incomprehensible reasons. Joaquin Book says whether the vaccines are as effective in every way as their proponents first hoped, hoped rather, doesn't really matter. They were a game changer that gave politicians a way out 
a way to not admit wrongdoing in the first half of the pandemic. Our political leaders and their bureaucratic underlings made plenty of errors in the last year and more, rooted on by an ever more authoritarian press and more intolerantly divided electorate. More so than the decades before that, with terrible foreign policy decisions like Iraq and Afghanistan, domestic surveillance and inept and invasive TSA searches, macroeconomic decisions like low interest rate policies, bailouts, invasive financial regulations, health care decisions, affordable care, and many more. He says, to a certain extent, we should relieve policymakers of at least some blame as they had to act in the moment on poor information and lots of fear-mongering. But we combined an invasive and trigger-happy political class dominated by the desire to rule others and the urge to do something with an inability to admit fault and roll back mistakes, the opposite of what one would need in a fast-paced, low-information environment. Joaquin Book says, as a political nation and individual actors, We can't seem to own up to our mistakes and instead double down on our errors. Democrats overestimated the danger of the disease many times over, thinking children were more at risk than they were and mostly refused to accept the low-hanging fruit that was available. Vitamin D, obesity, going outside, workouts, healthy eating. Republicans, while also vastly overestimating the lethality of the disease, did so to a smaller extent and erred in thinking COVID-19 less dangerous than routine ills like car crashes or seasonal flu. In an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal last week, John Tierney made the astute comparison to the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, when some of the same characters involved in today's pandemic mistakes showed their extreme tendency for exaggeration. Quote, The AIDS fearmongers suffered few consequences for their mistakes. The false alarms were long forgotten by the start of the COVID pandemic, when the news and public policy were dominated by scientists who overestimated the fatalities by a factor of 10 and erroneously warned that people could be easily infected by touching contaminated surfaces or breathing air outdoors. Now, Joaquin Book says in real life, people still believe the erroneous and absurdly exaggerated fears that our political and journalistic merchants of fear released a year and a half ago, as he learned this week from his taxi driver. That the unjust war on fat and faulty promotion of sugar and carbs nearing retirement now has only just begun to unravel. And that the Afghanistan debacle took close to two decades to roll back. Tells us that hysterical policy decisions last for an absurdly long time. How long we'll carry the mistakes of COVID, he says, is anybody's guess but we'll play a lot of security theater until then. I really love his analysis. I really love the American Institute for Economic Research. And if you are a person who is especially trying to keep up on all the different COVID data and, and I mean, really principled stuff, not just, you know, partisan back and forth, these are the guys I would, I would refer you to, AIER.org. You can sign up for their emails. They come, I think, just about every day. I think I I get emails pretty much every day, seven days a week, with about a half dozen or so great articles, meticulously researched and sourced, and very intelligently presented. I'm not saying it's gospel truth, but let's just say they put in the hard work of getting their facts straight. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to take a minute here to uh, talk about my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. I want you to know that I make a very sincere effort every time I crack open this microphone not to add to whatever fear or anger you may have at work in your life. And I'm not saying you're walking around as a seething ball of rage or, you know, a quivering, you know, lump of fear. But uh, let's just say there's, there's plenty of fear and anger to go around out there. I don't want to increase your burden. But occasionally we have to look at uh, some hard realities. And one of the hard realities that we're starting to see right now is the very beginning of a breakdown of a global of the global supply chain. You know, you see it in empty shelves in the stores. You see it particularly, those of you in the manufacturing industries, look at how difficult it is to get parts or to get commodities that, uh, you know, I mean, there are some things that are just uh, flatly, they're, they're, they're not available. People are losing sales because they can't fill their customers' orders because they can't get the materials they need to fill those orders. And what's the, what's the place? Is it Augustin Farms? Basically, one of the biggest suppliers of freeze-dried foods, you know, emergency foods for America, just announced they're shutting down for 90 days. Care to guess why? They can't get product. Now, why am I telling you this? Again, it's not to make you fearful. This is just, this is a simple reality check in the hopes that you will take this information and act on it while there is still relative calm and while there is still relative abundance, particularly in the form of of food stores. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes for lifesavingfood.com. If there was ever a time to get some stuff put away for a rainy day, this is the time. And the best part is, if you use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout, lifesavingfood.com will knock 20% off for my listeners. That's a better deal than if you went to Ready Wise Foods directly. It's a pretty significant uh, discount, and it could not be more timely. I don't know how to state that any more clearly without, you know, treading up into the, you know, he's getting really insistent. This is sounding kind of fearful. I just want you to be aware. We've got some serious times coming. And we have a window of opportunity. That window is open right now. I don't know when it's going to close, but I have a feeling that when it closes, it's going to slam shut. Probably akin to what we saw back about mid-March of 2020. Don't get caught. Don't get caught, you know, unprepared. And thank you in advance for supporting one of my great sponsors like LifesavingFoods.com. All right. I want to talk a little bit about that global supply chain breakdown. If you've been wondering why are so many of these container ships anchored or drifting just offshore instead of being unloaded, Peter C. Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research has a very detailed explanation. I'm going to share just a portion of this, but I also have a link to this article in the show notes. It's it's a fairly lengthy read, and he has plenty of charts and facts and figures. Again, this is not just somebody sitting down and throwing out, you know, a word salad of, here's what I think's going on. 
This is well-researched. But he starts with, uh, with a quote from Jim Morrison of The Doors and, and a poem song called Horse Latitudes in which Morrison describes the conditions under which stalled galleons would, drifting listlessly at certain latitudes, jettison their cargo so as to make the ship more susceptible to the slightest winds. And these are the lyrics. that, that uh, This is how it starts out. When the still sea conspires in armor and her soul in an aborted currents breed tiny monsters, true sailing is dead. Yeah, that's pretty deep. Peter C. Earl says, Cargo vessels no longer raise sails or require wind to fill them, but doldrum-like conditions are rapidly manifesting near ports all over the world. Last week, 61 vessels were were anchored offshore. Uh, This was as of September 23rd. Waiting to unload cargo as the port of Los Angeles and the, at the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach. Now, in addition to the anchored ships, twenty-nine were adrift up to twenty miles offshore, meaning they were far enough off the coast their anchors couldn't reach the ocean floor. And in the east, on Sunday, September twenty-sixth, the port of New York and New Jersey appeared to be facing similar issues, as West Coast ports with 24 cargo ships and oil tankers stuck waiting to dock off the coast of Long Island, New York. As of 9 p.m. local time Saturday, the ships appear to have been stuck in place for hours. Now, Peter Earl says, look, explanations for the increasing delays include slow unloading or loading times, rising costs of shipping, and capital shortages. All of those explanations are correct, he says, but incomplete and insufficiently descriptive. To, under, to uncover the root causes and trace their evolution, we have to go back to the very beginning. And he goes through all the different, uh, the different reasonings of why docking locations among the U.S. coast are among the slowest in the world. Not because of size or technological capability, but collective bargaining hindrances. He talks about where it all began. It says, as is well documented by now, the effects of non-pharmaceutical interventions sent measures of economic activity plummeting throughout the second quarter of 2020. Unemployment skyrocketed to levels not seen since the Great Depression. The U.S. government countered with stimulus payments via the CARES Act in March of 2020, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the American Rescue Plan, and although state governors adopted independent pandemic postures, the spectrum of stringency ran a gambit from less to more binding as exemplified by Florida and North Dakota versus Hawaii and California. What he's talking about here is the sudden strangulation of in-person commercial activity. Coupled with weeks to months of veritable isolation at home, trillions of dollars being mailed out, leading to a consumption binge. I mean, it was a good time for Amazon, right? This was both well-documented and empirically verifiable. Where in normal circumstances, modern U.S. consumers tend to purchase services more than goods, the circumstances arising of isolation at home for prolonged periods of time led to a decisive shift towards purchasing goods, electronics, furniture, exercise equipment, home improvement items, and so forth. From here, he goes into what intermodal transport is, how it makes much of the modern world tick, but mostly on an unobserved and mostly unappreciated level. For instance, the standardization of shipping containers in such a way that they can move from trucks to ships to aircraft, barges, and trains with a minimum of effort 
That's a feat of technology and international coordination. He talks a little bit about the Ever Given and the Suez Canal. Do you remember that earlier this year? The massive ship lodged there. He talks about how shipping containers have dwindled. And he goes into Chinese difficulties, containers and ships vanishing, pallets joining containers. I'm skipping ahead here. Also, ongoing port congestion. All of these things taken into account. And and there are charts and graphs that go along with every bit of this. Again, some of this may be too tedious for you, but if you really want to understand why there is uh, currently a breakdown in the supply chain or why it's starting to occur, Peter Earle's article is a great place to start. Oh, he also talks about how the spot rate for uh, shipping has gone up and up, like, incredibly. I think he said 700, as of last week, he says the spot rate for container rates was up 731% over the average of the past five years. Now, there's a lot of economist talk here. And for some people, that might, you know, it may have unfamiliar words or unfamiliar ideas. I just want to assure you, you are more than smart enough to figure this out, to to learn and grasp the concepts he's talking about. This is not, you know, uh, molecular biology. <clears throat> but I want to give you this this thought that he ends on. He says, science and engineering have brought about an era in which doldrums no longer vex modern-day mariners. In other words, the doldrums where there were no winds to fill their sails and the ships would sit there sometimes for weeks waiting for something to move them along that ocean surface. Yeah, that's no longer a problem. Peter C. Earle says, owing to innovation and entrepreneurship, these are no, there are no longer horse latitudes where payloads are dumped overboard by desperate crews. Yet those, immersion, those conditions rather have re-emerged, born not of nature, but of power mindlessly exercised. The idea that an economy could be indiscriminately shut down and turned back on without far-reaching consequences like a light switch or a lawnmower, he says, that is utterly damnable. It can only come from the mind of an individual or body of individuals with no understanding of or consideration for the extraordinary interdependence of the productive sector. I'm telling you, there's an education in this article alone. Check it out at thebrianhideshow.com. Consider subscribing. Consider becoming a supporter. Maybe consider becoming a sponsor. I'd love to have you come on board. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. All right, we're going to try this once again. Yeah, I'm still right there on that razor's edge of trying to hang on to my voice, as well as my dignity. So I'm going to ask you for your uh, pardon in advance. I beg your pardon, if, if you will. I'm going to be clearing my throat from time to time. <clears throat> There's an example of it right there. 
but uh, I am determined it's it's time to get back behind the mic. There is so much going on, and and this is worthy of our attention. And by the way, welcome to the show. If you are a first-time wrong thinker, I'm going to do my best not to scare you off. I talk about issues that I think matter. I try to cover topics that shed light on what's happening in the world around us, but not so much in a partisan way like rah-rah red team or rah-rah blue team. More from the standpoint <clears throat> that uh, you and I, have God-given rights that we need to stand up for. And so I do everything in my power to speak the truth, as best I understand it, to share with you the best sources of information that I can find on a day-to-day basis, and then what you do with that information, that's up to you. I've been accused of, you know, you're just trying to brainwash people, and it's true, I am, but I'm trying to brainwash them into thinking for themselves. So if you're cool with that, we can proceed. By the way, my show is brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also LifesavingFood.com. I'll have more to say about each of these sponsors a little bit later on, but let's talk about the rebellion. Yes. Over the weekend, I think I saw, I've I've seen different numbers, but I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 Southwest Airlines flights canceled due to a combination of pilots as well as air traffic controllers walking off the job in protest of vaccine mandates. Pretty crazy stuff. And, you know, the idea... Now, now I I want you to understand, I'm not just saying, you know, it sucks to be a traveler, you know, it's too bad for them. I just bought airline tickets a week ago. So I I have have a trip ahead of me. And uh, I'll be talking more about that in the days ahead. I'm actually going to be uh, traveling to meet my biological father for the first time. I'm willing to suffer inconvenience. In fact, I'll suffer some significant inconvenience if we can see some needed pushback against our mandate-happy overlord's demands. And this is one of those cases where, wow, it's, it's happening. Ron Paul has a great take on the great Southwest Airlines rebellion. This is pretty short and sweet, but man, he he gets right to the point. Ron Paul says the incredible cruelty and folly of forced vaccines finally came home to roost. The vaccine mandate backlash has been bubbling just under the surface, but now it's spilled out into the open, threatening to completely derail an already crumbling economy and to obliterate a deeply unpopular U.S. president and administration. He says, seemingly out of nowhere, what appears to be a Southwest Airlines rebellion has taken flight this weekend. According to media reports, scores of pilots and other Southwest employees have coordinated the taking of sick days to use them up in advance of a Southwest Airlines mandate to get the jab or lose the job. Now, over Saturday and Sunday, more than 2,000 flights have been canceled with airports experiencing full-on mayhem. The Southwest Airline Pilots Association is suing the airline over the imposed vaccine mandate, bolstering the claim that there is a sick out underway among angry Southwest pilots. And of course, predictably, the mainstream media is doing its very best to keep a lid on the expanding rebellion against the vaccine mandates. And they're blaming the cancellations on bad weather and a lack of air traffic controllers. However, the weather problems that Southwest claims to be experiencing seem to be unique to that carrier because no other airline thus far has been reporting such weather-related cancellations. 
And FAA spokesperson Stephen Colm told USA Today no FAA air traffic staffing shortages have been reported since Friday. So the question is, will other pilots, such as those at American Airlines, follow suit? Because rumors are circulating that this is just the beginning. Now, over the past few weeks, thousands of nurses, medical workers, and first responders either have quit or have been fired for refusing to receive a medical treatment that they don't want and, in many cases, don't need. The nursing shortage that Democrat politicians and mainstream media had been blaming on rising COVID cases has been, in reality, a man-made disaster of historic proportions. Ron Paul just comes right out and says it. He says the nursing crisis is not caused by COVID. Cases have been in the decline have been in decline in the US for weeks. This nursing crisis is caused by the firing of medical personnel who refuse to take the experimental COVID shots. Now he says the stupidity of adopting a policy of firing healthcare workers while at the same time claiming there is a raging pandemic gripping the country hasn't been lost on Americans. Biden's polling numbers have been unsurprisingly in freefall, with major Democrat candidates like Virginia's Terry McAuliffe openly complaining that the deeply unpopular Biden is threatening him in a tight race for governor. And while Biden administration lackeys like Fauci are telling Americans they can't celebrate Christmas again this year, more and more of America is finished with this public health terrorism. Oh, by the way, it didn't take very long for someone to accuse the uh, <clears throat> the Southwest Airlines pilots of engaging in domestic terrorism. They're disrupting U.S. travel. That, by definition, is terrorism. Yeah, everything's terrorism. When someone disobeys my demands, that is terrorism. I'm going to have to start using this on my kids. Guys, I just looked in the sink. There are still dishes here. This terrorism will not stand. I don't know. It, it just doesn't have the same ring. Ron Paul says, here in Texas, 100,000 unmasked Texas A&M fans poured onto the football field on Saturday after a last-minute surprise victory over Alabama. In Texas and elsewhere, the administration is losing the fear factor. And I like this optimistic note. He sounds here. He says, history may record this weekend as the turning point against the Biden administration's COVID tyranny. From nurses to pilots to truckers, even to Amtrak workers, it appears that America is standing up and saying enough. Every one of our fellow citizens standing up on principle to oppose tyranny, facing the loss of their jobs and security, is owed a debt of gratitude by all who love liberty. He says, let's hope that the peaceful rebellion continues to grow. I like that idea. And I I have no doubt that there are contingency plans that, you know, are being drawn up or perhaps even being implemented as we speak, you know, to to try to propel people back into line, you know, to to coerce them to, to get back on their leash. So anything you and I can do to help uh, bolster the efforts of those who are standing firm, look, people who are putting their jobs on the line, I mean, I'm not trying to be a negative Nelly here, but look around. This is not exactly the best economy that we've seen in a while. The prospect of losing your job, even when the economy is great, is stressful, it's daunting, it's disruptive. 
But to stand up with the possibility of losing your job when there is very real, you know, danger in being able to find employment and and for that matter, to be able to afford, you know, the basics, food and heating and so forth as the winter comes in. It's a scary time. And I guess the question that we have to answer and that I see people answering correctly by actually putting their necks on the line is, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the ability to to stand up for their freedom. You know, I've, I've commented before, and I don't mean to be derogatory when I say this, we have had it easy for a long time. We've ridden on the coattails of success of the greatest generation, you know, the ones who did the heavy lifting before us and, and who took a lot of the hits in order for us to enjoy prosperity and, and relative freedom, you know, compared to many other places around the world. We have been among the freest people that Earth has ever seen. And with that uh, prosperity and with that, that blessing, often comes a sense of entitlement. Come on, we all see it. But I think the time has come for us to do some heavy lifting of our own. And it's not so much a matter of you got your pitchfork, you got your torch, let's, you know, get out there and cause a ruckus. I think it comes down to something much more personal, and that is, do you know in your heart where you stand? Are you clear enough on what is important to you that you are willing to stand up and even at that personal risk, assert your rights, claim them, use them, and defend them? I'd like to think the answer is yes, at least in in the mind of each person who's hearing my voice right now. Well, stand up with those who are doing the standing. Show them that you've got their back. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give you a quick uh, overview of one of my sponsors. That would be lifesavingfood.com. Okay, this is kind of tricky for me because, look, I've been a longtime believer in food storage and self-reliance and the importance of knowing that you can take care of yourself. You're not dependent on someone else to keep food on your table or, you know, a roof over your head. I think that's that's where there's a great deal of peace of mind to be found. But I'm also <clears throat> looking around and I'm seeing the beginning of a massive breakdown in the supply chain throughout the world. And if you're getting used to the idea of, well, yeah, you know, we go into the grocery store and we notice, you know, there are more empty shelves than before. or These shelves are consistently empty. At first, it was a little bit unsettling, but now it's kind of becoming normal. People are getting used to it, and they don't really, they don't really feel any sense of, ah, yeah, that's a bad thing. But I'm thinking this would be a very good time for you to click on the link that I provide in my show notes. Click on the one, lifesavingfoods.com, and just check out what they have to offer in terms of food storage programs, whether you're starting from scratch or hopefully whether you're just, you know, adding to an existing food storage program. Here's the kicker. The supplies are there right now. 
There is not panic. There is not super high demand, so the prices are reasonable. But you, as my listener, will get a 20% discount if you use the, the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. On that note, we're going to move on. I'm trying to give our federal overlords the benefit of the doubt, but this, this is getting harder to do. Especially when those at the top of our national government seem <clears throat> very determined to punish all dissent against their current power grab. I saw a great article from Max Morton spelling out how working class Americans are considered a threat to the power of their government and the security of the United States. Now, this uh, this uh, walk off or these sick days being taken by America or by uh, Southwest Airlines pilots and Amtrak and air traffic controllers. It's already been compared to domestic terrorism. I haven't heard too many people in government pick up that mantra, but you know it can't be far away. Here's what Max Morton has to say. This is an article titled Between America and You. He says, in present day America, the federal government has decided that working class Americans are a danger to the security of the United States. What can you do to protect yourself? Now, he says, I write to you in the year of your awakening. This was the year you saw the Attorney General of the United States of America, Merrick Garland, label parents domestic terrorists. Garland turned the lethal and intrusive powers of the nation's law enforcement and counterterrorism apparatus against parents whose only crime was not consenting to their children's indoctrination into ideologies that are the antithesis of the traditional American way of life. He says, I write because you know that an unarmed veteran, Ashley Babbitt, was murdered by a rogue, politically motivated Capitol Police officer who will never face justice. I write because there are political prisoners being held in pretrial solitary confinement in our nation's capital for nonviolent misdemeanors. I write because your elected officials in Washington, D.C. have determined you are the greatest enemy America faces. And you must be silenced and diminished in society. And he says, and you know now, if you did not know before, that the federal security services of our country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your life. It doesn't matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It doesn't matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. Protest too loudly against woke ideology and your life can be destroyed. Resent the people trying to take away your medical freedom? You can be labeled an extremist. Turn against the mandates of tyrants and you will be banned from employment, health care, and education. The destroyers will rarely be held accountable. Mostly, they will receive pensions, paid appearances on mainstream cable news programs, and seats on the boards of pharmaceutical companies and defense contractors. Destruction is merely the superlative form of a dominion whose prerogatives include canceling, watchlisting, masking, beatings, humiliation, and murder. All of this is common to working-class America. All of this is over a decade old for bitter clingers of flyover America. No one is held responsible. Now, Max Morton says, look, you might recognize the paragraphs that that I just read to you. He says, this is a modern-day riff on a passage from... Ta Nahisi Coates' 2015 book, Between the World and Me, 
According to Coates, his book was conceived as a letter to his teenage son to express his profound anger at a nation which he believes refuses to prosecute police and government officials for violating the rights of young black men. How ironic that after only seven years, it now captures the current vitriol of our culture war and the corporate government tyranny of 2021. Evidently, the tables have turned since the publication of Coates' seminal work, which undoubtedly was the planned transformation that our 44th president so clearly promised. So he says, the situation traditional America faces is no secret. The persecution of dissent, religious beliefs, and traditional values is now in the open for all to see. The magnitude of the change in American culture is shocking, not from a sense of surprise as much as from the rapidity and deliberateness of it. We are overwhelmed by the radical changes in our present society. Many are having difficulty processing the totality of it. Max Morton says when Coates wrote his letter to his son, the mainstream media was full of stories of how black parents had to warn their black sons about unwarranted harassment and arrest by law enforcement, even though they were engaging in normal, legitimate activity. And he says, well, now is the time for traditional Americans to have that same conversation with each other. In present-day America, the federal government has decided that working-class Americans are a danger to the security of the United States. And Max Morton says, when the U.S. government decides you are a threat, they can bring frightening powers against you in order to disrupt what they view as your threatening activity. The tactics they employ are designed to circumvent your due process rights while simultaneously intimidating, coercing, and in some cases purposely ruining your life, a method colloquially described as process as punishment. And so he asks, how can traditional Americans avoid this kind of persecution? And he says you can start by understanding how organizations like the FBI work. If you haven't paid attention to past cases like the fake Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot or read Trevor and Aronson's book, The Terror Factory, then you should start there. He says it's important to understand that regardless of how you may have viewed federal law enforcement before 2020, you should be wary of it now because you are the target of this country's massive and deadly counterterrorism machine. Well, that ought to make us all sleep a little bit better at night, right? Max Morton says, in most cases, when the FBI or other law enforcement organizations are interested in you, they use informants to get close in order to report on your activities. The FBI doesn't need probable cause or a defined reason to employ informants against you. In other words, you don't need to be engaged in or even appear to be engaged in illegal activity. Because when they use informants, they may introduce an experienced professional into your inner circle, or they may approach a friend or coworker or a family member and coerce them or offer them substantial sums of cash to report on your activities. But he says informants don't just report on your actual activities. As occurred in the fake Whitmer kidnapping plot, informants can lie in their official reports or create crimes in your presence, implicating you in something you never intended to participate in. Informants get paid by giving their law enforcement handlers the information they want to hear to bolster their cases. These government agents get promoted by making arrests and bringing cases to trial. The more flamboyant and colorful the case, well, the better the headlines and promotions. 
In other words, the system is built to incentivize lying, fabricating evidence, and convicting innocent people. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an excellent article from Max Morton. This is published in AmericanGreatness.com. Actually, it's AmGreatness.com. And it's called Between America and You. I don't know if you remember the book here from just a few years ago of a guy sitting down and saying, look, as a black man, I have to sit down and have this conversation with my boys and tell them, this is the talk. You know, you have to avoid the police. And even if you're engaged in perfectly law-abiding activity, you're going to get harassed and you're going to be singled out. You're going to be targeted. It's that same concept, except this is applied to working-class Americans who increasingly are being viewed by our government as, you know, a threat. Any dissenting voice is equated with extremism, terrorism. I mean, for crying out loud, why else would the Attorney General of the United States take seriously the idea that, yes, we'll get the FBI right on that, about these parents speaking up at school board meetings? Because the government couldn't possibly be in the wrong on any of this. Morton says the FBI and Department of Homeland Security use a kind of checklist to build their cases with informants. And this checklist is commonly referred to as Indicators of Mobilization to Violence, or IMV. And the IMV is composed of a list of both common and less common human activities. And this could include anything from attending church, going camping, owning firearms, to traveling abroad, having relatives associated with extremist activity, or writing political manifestos like the Unabomber. He says the IMV checklist produces a score which is used to determine the danger posed by the subject under investigation. And the problem with the IMV is it mostly contains common and constitutionally protected activities, including work-related duties and recreational hobbies. He says the IMV score can be manipulated to create a justification for extremely intrusive and potentially life-ruining actions by the FBI. Actions which include physical and technical surveillance, official visits to neighbors, employers, or your children's school teachers, as well as the use of informants to attempt to steer you into a prosecutable crime or IMV-flagged activity. It can result in a person being watch-listed or even placed on a no-fly list. So consider this. A conservative citizen combat veteran who owns a firearm, attends church, goes camping, hunts, and posts funny memes on social media that may make fun of government officials, checks the same blocks on the IMV as an Islamic extremist who attended a terrorist training camp, fought with an Islamic insurgent group in Syria, regularly attends an extremist mosque, and posts jihadi suicide bomber videos on Telegram. Now that the upset parents of school children and vaccine-hesitant minorities are being targeted by the FBI as domestic terrorists, Max Morton says it's worth taking some time to learn about this emerging threat to your liberty. 
For years, Americans wrongly assumed that the word terrorist referred to Al-Qaeda or crazy white-robed fringe weirdos. Well, those days are over. The Patriot Act, the surveillance state, and the weaponized agencies of federal law enforcement and justice are now focused squarely on traditional Americans. So to protect yourself, your family, and your community, he says it's critical to organize and build support networks. Keep your activities political and focus on fixing what's broken. No matter how frustrated you get, don't talk trash or violence. Because the walls have ears. And most importantly, do not participate in or support the FBI's so-called counterterrorism actions against your fellow citizens. If you see something or hear something about government agents stalking a fellow citizen, speak up to those concerned. You have rights only as long as you are willing to stand for them. You can survive this only as long as you are not isolated. The moment you become obedient, alone, and quiet is the moment you stop being a free American. I know there are people who probably are inclined to say, yeah, well, maybe if that day ever comes. But I think the day is here. And I don't say that to be sensational and to, you know, to to blow this out of proportion. This is the time to be really, really careful. And people who suggest, well, maybe we ought to do this illegal activity or that illegal activity. If it's not somebody you know well and have known for years, get far away from that person. They're glowing, as in they are a government informant, most likely. Let me shift gears here for just a moment. Um, Speaking of, uh, you know, government getting a little more involved in your life, keeping tabs on you. Isn't it ironic that uh, we have politicians throwing around trillions of dollars in spending? And yet, with all of that uh, wanton spending and with all of these incredible bills where they're bailing out their friends and bestowing favors on their, their favorite constituencies, now we hear that the IRS is very interested and is telling banks, we need to know anytime someone does a transaction greater than $600. This is a huge invasion of your personal privacy. And it leads us to a discussion on the future of direct taxation. Jeff Thomas, writing for International Man, starts with a picture of a robber pointing a gun in your face. It's a masked robber, gun in your face, in the hand, give me your money. And he says, this image above may be considered by some as unfair, as it suggests that taxation is a form of robbery. So he says, well, let's check the dictionary for a definition. Robbery is defined as taking away of goods or property by force or intimidation. Well, that certainly fits the bill. Of course, Inland Revenue or the IRS or CRA, etc., depending on where you're from, would say, well, it's not robbery if it's lawful. But he says, as I see it, the fact that a law has been passed to allow robbery does not change it from being robbery. It's merely institutionalized robbery. Now, academics may say, well, we elect representatives to run the central government, and those representatives are then entrusted to pass the laws, which we must then meekly follow. But again, this argument doesn't hold water for me, as these individuals may have been elected, but they most certainly do not represent me if they pass a law that says it's okay for them to rob me. No government has ever asked me for permission to take my money simply because they want it, and I have never given it. 
And if there's any question as to whether the above definition is correct, he says, I'd be happy to put that to the test. The Internet makes possible individualized referendum. If we were all to be questioned as to whether we wish to be taxed, we could easily decide on an individual basis. And I'm guessing it wouldn't that I wouldn't be alone if I were to say, no, thank you. But he says, to be fair, I do approve of taxation, but only indirect taxation. In other words, taxation based on consumption, which he says is lawful in his own country, the Cayman Islands. And he says, and I received good value for money. Now, many would say that it's impossible to operate any government without direct taxation, but that's not the case. He says, in the UK, income tax was initiated in 1799 to pay for the Napoleonic Wars, and the tax never went away. In Canada, income tax was initiated in 1917 to pay for World War I, and the tax never went away. In the U.S., income tax was initiated in 1913 as a means to compensate for lost revenue due to recently decreased tariffs, clever, and the tax never went away. So in most of the world, taxation is regarded as an imposition, and it's considered understandable that nobody really wants to pay a tax. The U.S. government promotes a rather different view, that the payment of tax is a patriotic duty. In the U.S., a tax amount can be demanded, and the onus of proof is on the citizen as to whether the IRS demand is correct. In other words, you're guilty until proven innocent. But in most all countries, payment of tax is described by governments as voluntary, as citizens file their tax forms, pay their income tax, and then hope for the best. In other words, the government doesn't actually break down your door and take away what they have decided is the right amount. In the U.S. today, though, through civil uh, forfeiture, billions of dollars in money and goods have been taken from citizens without even necessarily charging the citizen with a crime. But at present, tax collection is still handled voluntarily. But he asks the question, is income tax essential to keep a government alive, or is it possibly only essential for those countries that conduct wars? Well, a part of the answer comes in the fact that the income tax is so commonly justified as repayment of war debt. Presumably, if the political leaders had not engaged in war, they never would have had to introduce income tax to pay for the war. Certainly, the U.S. and Canada went through their greatest historical expansion periods, meaning the last part of the 19th century, and the Industrial Revolution without direct taxation. This is a good place for us to pump the brakes. We're going to come back to Jeff Thomas's article. I got to warn you, though, when he describes what this uh, $600 reporting requirement really is prepping us for, it's pretty chilling. And it should get your blood pressure up just a notch or two. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article here from Jeff Thomas from International Man, The Future of Direct Taxation. I wish I could tell you it was good news. (laughs) It's not great news, but... 
We'll get back to the article in just a moment. A quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. This is the organization I would encourage you to get a hold of if you are looking to secure a mortgage anywhere in the state of Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And you can call her at 435-703-4522. Bottom line is if you need to get a loan without delay. Heather has the clout. She has the decades of experience to make it happen. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There's even a link to her email in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, back to Jeff Thomas's article. <clears throat> he asks the question of, is income tax essential to keep a government alive? And points out that in his own country, and I'm not sure which country is his, I'm, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if it's uh, Great Britain or what, but he says, in its 500-year history, his country, no, maybe, that, maybe that's, that's got to that's be somebody other than England. Anyway, and he says, in my, my own country, in its 500-year history, has never declared war on another country and has never had direct taxation of any kind. That's right, he's in the Cayman Islands. Okay, so let's repeat that. It has never had income tax, corporate tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, or even value-added taxes, property tax, or sales tax in all of its history. He says, most of our tax revenue comes from company fees and consumption tax. Now, of course, this means that our government is limited in how big and powerful it can become. But that's something we look upon as highly positive, as a highly positive byproduct. Indeed, the lack of direct taxation is regarded as an insurance policy against the creation of an overly powerful government. So what can we expect to see regarding the future of direct taxation? Well, he says, for a start, several of the jurisdictions in what was once called the free world, notably the EU, U.S., and Canada, have passed bail-in legislation. That is legislation that allows banks to confiscate deposits should the banks decide that an emergency exists. The depositor would have no rights, no recourse. The bank right now can simply rob you of your deposits with the full approval of the government. To this is added a bank policy that's been popping up all over the world, which is restrictions on the size of transactions you're allowed to make with your own money. The higher the transaction amount, the more suspect you are of being involved in criminal and or terrorist acts, which they then have to report to the authorities. And to add insult to injury, some countries having established limits have already begun lowering them, and this trend is establishing the banks as a regulating body, deciding what you may or may not do monetarily. Now, a third element in this trend has not yet been put in place, but it is in the planning stage. And that's the elimination of paper currency. The plan is to force all wealth into banks where they can control it, then eliminate the use of paper currency. Paper currency is currently being blamed, being blamed for the source of funding for terrorism, so anybody who objects to the elimination of its use can plan on becoming a suspected terrorist. Terrorist, rather. <clears throat> Jeff Thomas says, once all three components have been achieved, people in these jurisdictions will only be able to make monetary transactions through a bank. There will be no mattress stuffing, no purchases or sales or other forms of wealth unless they're considered acceptable to banks and governmental authorities. 
And finally, there will be the subject of taxation. Once all the wealth is trapped in the banking system, direct involuntary taxation can begin. Since your government will have a record of every financial transaction that you've made during the year, they can unilaterally decide what you owe in tax and take it as a direct debit from your account. And they'll certainly provide you with the right to appeal, if you can afford the appeal process and you're feeling lucky. Now, on the bright side, annual tax filing will be a thing of the past. Individuals will not need to file. Tax debits can be made more frequently, perhaps quarterly, maybe even monthly. Should tax rates rise dramatically due to, say, war, which is certainly in the cards, the depositor will have little choice other than to watch the robbery take place on a regular basis. And again, those who object may find themselves being investigated for terrorism. Now, throughout history, those who have believed they've been overtaxed have had but three choices. The first is simply accept enslavement to the government. The second is a revolt of one form or another. The third has always been to move your wealth, however large or small, to a better jurisdiction, one where the government has a long reputation for stability and respect for the rights of personal ownership. Sadly, much of the formerly free world is heading in the exact opposite direction, and he says the reader may wish to consider whether he wishes to exit his wealth from his president country of residence before the door has been firmly shut. In other words, uh, by doing so, <laughs> you're, you're going to be protecting what you have left. And you may give thought to expatriating yourself to one of the more freer, more promising jurisdictions. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One final note here, and this is kind of a positive one from Paul Rosenberg, The Beauty and Dignity of the Productive Class. <clears throat> I strongly recommend Paul Rosenberg's essays. This guy just has a great take on about everything. And he says, you know, he was watching one time, uh, he watched a, a guy setting up for an event. And he says, what I saw was a lone man setting up tables and chairs, simple work, the kind that any teenager could do. But he says, as I watched this man do what he was doing, it was every bit as beautiful as a dance. He moved with integrity, with precision, with intent, carefully spaced the tables in a precise geometry. He moved every chair with efficiency. This was more than just work. It was art. His point is this guy knew that he was doing his job well, and most importantly, it was clear he enjoyed doing it well. And the point here that Paul Rosenberg is making is that there is real beauty in doing a job well, even if it's a simple job. And it's our great loss that this form of beauty is never mentioned in public these days. Double sad, because at one time such beauty was acknowledged. Which brings us to an obvious question. What happened? How did we lose the beauty and dignity of work? He says, well, I'm going to answer that in a moment, but first I want to explain what I mean by the productive class. He says the productive class includes all those people who are engaged in improving life upon earth. That would be the people who build and repair our cars, our houses, and our computers, the people who provide us with air conditioning, electricity, plumbing, and food, the people who make, clean, and repair our clothing, the people who treat our sicknesses and wounds. If you can drive around town and point out places where you repaired things or delivered things or fed people or made human life better in any of a thousand ways, you are a producer. If you survive and persist at the expense of others, on the other hand, you're not a producer. 
But he says, if you are a producer, there's inherent dignity in what you do. You are actively making the world better. You're directly creating benefit for yourself and other human beings. What you do every day is morally virtuous and worthy of respect, and you should never let anyone tell you otherwise. And he says it's also worth pointing out, money is not a measure of your worth. In a perfect world, that might be true, but this isn't a perfect world. In our time, morality and money don't always travel together. Money is certainly useful and getting it should matter to you, but merely having money is no measure of your dignity or your value as a producer. Actively improving the world, however, producing, that is a proper measure of dignity. Now he asked, how were the beauty and dignity of work ruined? And the short answer is, they were killed by hierarchy and status. Because we've been taught to accept, respect, and respond to hierarchy for years. That's why we we respond to images of kings and great leaders and so on. But he says, uh, there was a time when millions of people accepted deathly boring jobs simply for better pay. The meaning of their work became a paycheck and nothing more. And in the industrial setting, there was one clear marker of status, and that was the position of ordering other people around. Bosses got status, workers got checks, both lost meaning and satisfaction from their work. And it gave us this attitude, only people who order others around matter. Everybody else should feel ashamed in their presence. Well, Paul Rosenberg says, look, productive work is the insertion of creativity into the world. It's the birthing of benefit into the world. And he says, people who do this should be deeply satisfied by what they do. He says, if you're a member of the the productive class, you should rearrange your mind and stop responding to the demands of hierarchy and status. Pay attention to the things that actually improve human life in the world. Because compared to productive work, he says, status is merely ornamental puffery. A shiny coat with the word important emblazed upon it and worn by a sad little man. What a great essay. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.